It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. The Crypto Story where it came from, what it all means, and why it still matters, by Matt Levine. 1. Ledgers, Bitcoins, Blockchains Part A. Life in Databases Modern life consists in large part of entries in databases. If you have money, what you have is an entry in your bank's database saying how much money you have. If you have a share of stock, what you have is generally an entry on a list, kept by the company or, more likely, some central intermediary, of who owns stock. If you own a house, things are slightly different. There's a house involved. But your ownership of that house is probably written down in some database. In the U.S., this often means there's a record of you buying the house, your title, in a filing cabinet in the basement of some county clerk's office. It's not a very good database. In many ways, the important thing here is the house. You have a key to the front door. Your stuff is there. Your neighbors will be unsurprised to see you leaving the house in the morning and would be surprised to see someone else coming back in. But in many other ways, the important thing is the entry in the database. A bank will want to make sure you have the title before giving you a mortgage. A buyer will want to do the proper procedures to that record before paying you for the house. The key will not suffice. Plus, lots of other stuff. Much of modern life occurs online. It's not quite true that your social life and your career and your reputation consist of entries in the databases of Meta Platforms and Google and Microsoft, but it's not quite false either. Some of this stuff has to do with computers. It's far more convenient for the money to be computer entries than sacks of gold, or even paper bills. Some of it is deeper than that, though. What could it mean to own a house? One possibility is the state of nature. Owning a house means, one, you're in the house, and two, if someone else tries to move in, you're bigger than them so you can kick them out. But if they're bigger than you, now they own the house. Another possibility is what you might think of as a village. Owning a house means you live there and your neighbors all know you live there, and if someone else tries to move in, then you and your neighbors combined are bigger than them. Homeownership is mediated socially by a high-trust network of peers. A third possibility is what you might think of as a government. 
owning a house means the government thinks you own the house. And if someone else tries to move in, then the government will kick them out. You don't need to live there because the government's knowledge is sufficient. You can rent out the house. Someone else can move in with your permission. If you revoke the permission, you can go to the government and it will, subject to landlord, tenant law, etc., kick the person out. Homeownership is mediated socially by a government. The database is a way for the government to keep track. You don't have to trust any particular person. You have to trust the rule of law. Money is a bit like that, too. Sacks of gold are a fairly straightforward form of it, but they're heavy. A system in which your trusted banker holds on to your sacks for you and writes you letters of credit, and you can draw on those letters at branches of the bank run by your banker's cousin, that's pretty good, though it relies on trust between you and the banker, as well as the banker and the banker's cousin. A system of impersonal banking in which the tellers are strangers, and you probably use an ATM anyway, requires trust in the system, trust that the banks are constrained by government regulation or reputation or market forces and so will behave properly. Saying that modern life is lived in databases means, most of all, that modern life involves a lot of trust. We trust the keepers of the databases. Sometimes this is because we know them and consider them to be trustworthy. More often, it means we have an abstract sense of trust in the broader system, the system of laws and databases and trust itself. We assume that we can trust the systems we use because doing so makes life much easier than not trusting them, and because that assumption mostly works out. It's a towering and underappreciated achievement of modernity that we mostly do trust the database keepers, and that they mostly are trustworthy. Part B. What if you don't like it? Section 1. Distrust. But we don't always trust them, and they're not always trustworthy. Sometimes they just aren't. There are banks you can't trust to hold your money for you, and places where you can't trust the rule of law to regulate them. There are governments you can't trust not to seize your money from the banks, or falsify election results, or change the property registry and take your house. There are social media companies you can't trust not to freeze your account arbitrarily. Most people in the U.S. most days live in a high-trust world, where it's easy and reasonable to trust that the intermediaries who run the databases that shape our lives will behave properly. But not everyone everywhere lives like that. Even in the U.S., trust can be fragile. The 2008 financial crisis caused huge and lasting damage to a lot of people's trust in the banking system. People trusted banks to do nice, safe, socially productive things, and it turned out they were doing wild, risky things that caused an economic crisis. After that, it became harder for many people to trust banks to hold their savings. Also, though, you might have a philosophical objection to trust. Even if your bank has an absolutely unblemished record of keeping track of your money, that might not be good enough for you. Your bank is, to you, a black box. How do I know you'll give me my money back? You could ask the bank. And the bank will say things like, here are your audited financial statements, and we are regulated by the Federal Reserve and insured by the Federal Deposit Insurance Corp, and we have never not given back anyone's money. And you'll say, yes, yes, that's all fine, but how do I know? You don't. Trust is built into the system, a prerequisite. 
you might want proof. This is probably a modern desire, or at least a desire that's more intense and easier to satisfy in modern times. In a world without the Internet, without Wikipedia, without links, without open-source software, etc., you had to take a million facts on faith every day. What were you going to do? Look them all up? Section 2. Composability even if you're generally cool with trusting the keepers of modern databases, you might have a more technical objection. These databases are not always very good. Lots of the banking system is written in a very old computer language called COBOL. In the U.S., people still frequently make payments, electronic transfers between electronic databases of money, by writing paper checks and putting them in the mail. U.S. stock trades take two business days to settle, if I buy stock from you on a Monday, you deliver the stock, and I pay you on Wednesday. This isn't because your broker has to put stock certificates in a sack and bring them over to my broker's office, while my broker puts dollar bills in a sack and brings them over to your broker's office, but because the actual process is a descendant of that. It's slow and manual and sometimes gets messed up. Lots of stock trades fail. Don't even get me started on the property registry. If you buy a house, you have to go to a ceremony, a closing, where a bunch of people with jobs like title company lawyer mutter incantations that let you own the house. It can take hours. If your model of how a database should work comes from modern computers, the hours of incantations seem insane. There should be an API, you might think. There should be an application programming interface allowing each of these databases to interact with the others. If your bank is thinking about giving you a mortgage, it should be able to query the property database automatically and find out that you own your house, rather than send a lawyer to the county clerk's office. And it should be able to query the Department of Motor Vehicles registry automatically and get your driver's license for identification purposes, and query your brokerage account automatically and examine your assets. Modern life consists of entries in databases. What if we updated them? What if we rewrote all the databases from scratch in modern computer languages using modern software engineering principles with the goal of making them interact with one another seamlessly? If you did that, it would be almost like having one database, the database of life. I could send you money in exchange for your house, or you could send me social reputation in exchange for my participation in an online class, or whatever, all in the same computer system. That would be convenient and powerful, but it would also be scary. It would put even more pressure on trust. Whoever runs that one database would, in a sense, run the world. Whom could you trust to do that? Part C. Digital cash. What if there was one database and everyone ran it? In 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto published a method for everyone to run a database, thus inventing crypto. Well, I'm not sure that's what Satoshi thought he was doing. Most immediately, he was inventing Bitcoin, a peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system, which is the title of his famous white paper. What Satoshi said he'd invented was a sort of cash for internet transactions, an electronic payment system based on cryptographic proof instead of trust, allowing any two willing parties to transact directly with each other without the need for a trusted third party. 
If I want to buy something from you for digital cash, Bitcoin, I just send you the Bitcoin and you send me the thing. No trusted third party, such as a bank, is involved. When I put it like that, it sounds as if Satoshi invented a system in which I can send you Bitcoin and nobody else is involved. What he actually invented was a system in which lots of other people are involved. Section 1. Before we continue, a digression. What are you even reading? Why are you reading it? Thanks, Matt. For the past few years, the most polarizing thing in finance has been crypto. Crypto is a set of ideas and products and technologies that grew out of the Bitcoin white paper. But it's also, let's be clear, a set of lines on charts that went up. When Satoshi invented Bitcoin, one Bitcoin was worth zero dollars. It was just an idea he made up. At its peak last November, one Bitcoin was worth more than $67,000, and the total value of all the crypto in circulation was something like $3 trillion. Many people who got into crypto early got very rich very fast and were very annoying about it. They bought Lamborghinis and islands. They were pleased with themselves. They thought crypto was the future, and they were building the future, and being properly and amply rewarded for it. They said things like, have fun staying poor, and NGMI, not gonna make it, to people who didn't own crypto. They were right and rich and wanted you to know it. Many other people weren't into crypto. They got the not entirely unjustified impression that it was mostly useful for crime or for Ponzi schemes. They asked questions like, what is this for? Or where did all this money come from? Or if you're building the future, what is the actual work you're doing? Or if you're building the future, why does it seem so grim and awful? And the crypto people often replied, have fun staying poor. And then, this year, those lines on charts went down. The price of one Bitcoin fell below $20,000. The total value of crypto fell from $3 trillion to $1 trillion. Some big crypto companies failed. If you're a crypto skeptic, this was very satisfying. Not just as a matter of schadenfreude, but also because maybe now everyone will shut up about crypto, and you can go back to not paying attention to it. For crypto enthusiasts, this was just a reason to double down on grinding. The crash would shake out the casual fans and leave the true believers to build the future together. In a sense, it's a dumb time to be talking about crypto, because the lines went down. But really, it's a good time to be talking about crypto. There's a pause. There's some repose. Whatever is left in crypto is not just speculation and get-rich-quick schemes. We can think about what crypto means, divorced a little bit, from the lines going up. I don't have strong feelings either way about the value of crypto. I like finance. I think it's interesting. 
And if you like finance, if you like understanding the structures that people build to organize economic reality, crypto is amazing. It's a laboratory for financial intuitions. In the past 14 years, crypto has built a whole financial system from scratch. Crypto constantly reinvented or rediscovered things that finance had been doing for centuries. Sometimes it found new and better ways to do things. Often it found worse ways, heading down dead ends that traditional finance tried decades ago with hilarious results. Often it hit on more or less the same solutions that traditional finance figured out, but with new names and new explanations. You can look at some crypto thing and figure out which traditional finance thing it replicates. If you do that, you can learn something about the crypto financial system. You can, for instance, make an informed guess about how the crypto thing might go wrong. But you can also learn something about the traditional financial system. The crypto replication gives you a new insight into the financial original. Also, I have to say, as someone who writes about finance, I have a soft spot for stories of fraud and market manipulation and smart people putting one over on slightly less smart people. Often those stories are interesting and illuminating and especially funny. Crypto has a very high density of stories like that. And so now I write a lot about crypto, including quite a lot right here. I need to give you some warnings. First, I don't write about crypto as a deeply embedded crypto expert. I'm not a true believer. I didn't own any crypto until I started working on this article. Now I own roughly $100 worth. I write about crypto as a person who enjoys human ingenuity and human folly and who finds a lot of both in crypto. Conversely, I didn't sit down and write 40,000 words to tell you that crypto is dumb and worthless and will now vanish without a trace. That would be an odd use of time. My goal here is not to convince you that crypto is building the future and that if you don't get on board, you'll stay poor. My goal is to convince you that crypto is interesting, that it has found some new things to say about some old problems, and that even when those things are wrong, they're wrong in illuminating ways. Also, I'm a finance person. It seems to me that, 14 years on, crypto has a pretty well-developed financial system, and I'm going to talk about it a fair bit because it's pretty well-developed, and because I like finance. But no one should care that much about a financial system. A financial system is, well, a series of databases. It's a way to shovel around claims on tangible stuff. It's an adjunct to the real world. A financial system is good if it makes it easier for farmers to grow food and families to own houses and businesses to make awesome computer games if it helps to create and distribute abundance in real life. A financial system is bad if it trades abstract claims in ways that enrich the people doing the trading but don't help anyone else. I, eh, uh, a salient question in crypto for the past 14 years has been, what is it good for? If you ask for an example of a business that actually uses crypto, the answers you'll get are mostly financial businesses. Well, we built a really great exchange for trading crypto. Cool. Okay. Sometimes these answers are plausibly about creating or distributing abundance. Crypto lets immigrants send remittances cheaply and quickly. That's good. Often they're about efficient gambling. Gambling is fun, nothing against it, but a financial system that was purely about gambling would be kind of limited. 
Meanwhile, crypto's most ardent boosters say crypto is about building real, useful things. Crypto will redefine social relationships and gaming and computers. It will build the metaverse. Crypto is the vital component of the next leap in the Internet. Crypto will build Web3 to replace our current Web2. Maybe? If you ask for an example of a business that actually uses crypto, you'll get a ton of real, lucrative financial businesses, then some vague theoretical musings like, well, maybe we could build a social media network on Web3. It's still early. Maybe someone will build a really good social media network on Web3. Maybe in 10 years, crypto and blockchains and tokens will be central to everything that's done on the Internet. And the Internet will be, even more than it is now, central to everything that's done in human life. And the crypto early adopters will all be right and rich, while the rest of us will have fun staying poor. And schoolchildren will say, I can't believe anyone ever doubted the importance of Dogecoin. I don't want to discount that possibility, and I do want to speculate about it a little bit, maybe sketch a picture of what that might mean. I'm not going to give you a roadmap for how we'll get there. I'm not a tech person, and I'm not a true believer. But it is worth trying to understand what crypto could mean for the future of the Internet, because the implications are sometimes utopian, and sometimes dystopian, and sometimes just a modestly more efficient base layer for stuff you do anyway. Plus, the finance is cool, and it's cool now. Section 2. A Second Digression. Names and People. Before we go on, let me say some things about some names. First, crypto. This thing I'm writing about here. There's not a great name for it. The standard name, which I'll use a lot, is crypto, which I guess is short for cryptocurrency. This is not a great name because, one, it emphasizes currency, and a lot of crypto is not particularly about currency, and two, it emphasizes cryptography. And while crypto is, in some deep sense, about cryptography, most people in crypto are not doing a ton of cryptography. You can be a crypto expert or a crypto billionaire or a leading figure in crypto without knowing much about cryptography. And people who are cryptography experts sometimes get a bit snippy about the crypto people stealing their prefix. There are other names for various topics in crypto. Blockchain, tokens, Web3, DeFi, the metaverse. And they're sometimes used broadly to refer to a lot of what's going on in crypto. But it's not like they're great either. So I'll mostly stick with crypto as the general term. Second, Satoshi Nakamoto. That's a pseudonym, and whoever wrote his white paper has done a reasonably good job of keeping himself, herself, or themselves pseudonymous ever since. There's a lot of speculation about who the author might be. Some of the funnier suggestions include Elon Musk and a random computer engineer named um, Satoshi Nakamoto. I'm going to call Satoshi Nakamoto Satoshi and use he-him pronouns because most people do. A related point. Other than maybe Satoshi, basically everyone involved in cryptocurrency is a hilariously outsized personality. It's a good bet that if you read an article about crypto, it will feature wild characters. One story in Bloomberg Businessweek last year mentioned sending billions of perfectly good U.S. dollars to the Inspector Gadget co-creator's Bahamian bank in exchange for digital tokens conjured by the Mighty Ducks guy and run by executives who are targets of a U.S. criminal investigation. 
Except this one. There won't be a single exciting person in this whole story. My goal here is to explain crypto, so that when you read about a duck guy doing crypto, you can understand what it is that he's doing. Section 3. One final digression. The crypto in crypto. Cryptography is the study of secret messages, of coding and decoding. Most of what I talk about in this article won't be about cryptography. It will be about, you know, Ponzi's. But the base layer of crypto really is about cryptography, so it will be helpful to know a bit about it. The basic thing that happens in cryptography is that you have an input, a number, a word, a string of text, and you run some function on it, and it produces a different number or word or whatever as an output. The function might be the Caesar cipher. Shift each letter of a word by one or more spots in the alphabet so Caesar becomes dibfitbus. Or pig Latin. Shift the first consonants of the word to the end and add a so Caesar becomes Ezer say. Or something more complicated. A useful property in cryptographic function is that it be one way. This means it's easy to turn the input string into the output string, but hard to do it in reverse. It's easy to compute the function in one direction, but impossible in the other. The classic example is that multiplying two large prime numbers is quite straightforward. Factoring an enormous number into two large primes is hard. The Caesar cipher is easy to apply and easy to reverse, but some forms of encoding are easy to apply and much more difficult to reverse. That makes them better for secret codes. What I call a one-way function in the text is, more strictly, a function that we hope is one-way, based on current understanding of computer technology and math and cryptography. One example of this is a hashing function, which takes some input text and turns it into a long number of a fixed size. So I could run a hashing function on this article. A popular one is called SHA-256, which was invented by the National Security Agency, and generate a long, incomprehensible number from it. To make it more incomprehensible, it's customary to write this number in hexadecimal so that it will have the digits 0 through 9, but also A through F. I could send you the number and say, I wrote an article and ran it through a SHA-256 hashing algorithm, and this number was the result. You'd have the number, but you wouldn't be able to make heads or tails of it. In particular, you couldn't plop it into a computer program and decode it, turning the hash back into this article. If you want to try it for yourself, there are various SHA-256 calculators online. One is at Zorbin.com. Or, if you want to program it yourself, or do some hashing with pencil and paper, there is a U.S. government publication, FIPS Pub 184, that spells out the algorithm. Or it's on Wikipedia. The hashing function is one way. The hash tells you nothing about the article, even if you know the hashing function. The hashing function basically shuffles the data in the article. It takes each letter of the article, represented as a binary number, a series of bits, zeros, and ones, and then shuffles around the zeros and ones lots of times, mashing them together until they are all jumbled up and unrecognizable. The hashing function gives clear step-by-step -step instructions for how to shuffle the bits together, but they don't work in reverse. It's like stirring cream into coffee. Easy to do, hard to undo. Applying a SHA-256 algorithm will create a 64-digit number for data of any size you can imagine. 
A hash of the entire text of James Joyce's 730-page novel Ulysses goes... 3F1208A0D42BB6AF2C3B858A08BE9F73DD422F5E92C04F826865D0E. It fits in the same 64-character space as the hash of Hi, I'm Matt, which starts with 86D and ends with 044. But what if I wrote Hi, I'm Matt? with a comma instead of an exclamation mark. Then it starts with 9F5 and ends with 58B. There's no apparent relationship between the numbers for Hi, I'm Matt and Hi, I'm Matt. The two original inputs were almost exactly identical. The hash outputs are wildly different. This is a critical part of the hashing function being one way. If similar inputs mapped to similar outputs, then it would be too easy to reverse the function and decipher messages. But for practical purposes, each input maps to a random output. Since hashes spit out a fixed number of digits, it's possible that two different inputs could map to the same hash. This is called a collision. But a 64-digit hexadecimal number allows for a lot of different hashes, 16 to the 64th, or about 10 to the 77th of them, or many billion times more than the number of atoms on Earth. What's the point of a secret code that can't be decoded? For one thing, it's a way to verify. If I sent you a hash of this article, it wouldn't give you the information you need to recreate the article. But if I then sent you the article, you could plop that into a computer program, the SHA-256 algorithm, and generate a hash. And the hash you generate will exactly match the number I sent you. And you'll say, aha, yes, you hashed that article all right. It's impossible for you to decode the hash, but it's easy for you to check that I encoded it correctly. Exercise for the reader. I have included some hashes of some texts in this article, and I have talked about the hash of this article, but I haven't included the hash of this article in the article. Why not? Believe me, I wanted to. This would be dumb to do with this article, but the principle has uses. A simple everyday one is passwords. If I have a computer system and you have a password to log into the system, I need to be able to check that your password is correct. One way to do this is for my system to store your password and check what you type against what I've stored. I have a little text file with all the passwords, and it has password123 written next to your username, and you type password123 on the login screen, and my system checks what you type against the file and sees that they match and lets you log in. But this is a dangerous system. If someone steals the file, they would have everyone's password. It's better practice for me to hash the passwords. You type password123 as your password when setting up the account, and I run it through a hash function and get back 008.601, and I store that on my list. When you try to log in, you type your password, and I hash it again, and if it matches the hash on my list, I let you in. If someone steals the list, they can't decode your password from the hash, so they can't log in to the system. It's beyond the scope here, but there's a lot more cryptographic fun. Rainbow tables, salt, etc. involved in defeating or strengthening this type of security. There are other, more crypto-nerdy uses for hashing. One is a sort of time stamping. Let's say you predict some future event, and you want to get credit when it does happen. 
but you don't want to just go on Twitter now and say, I predict that the Jets will win the Super Bowl in 2024 to avoid being embarrassed or influencing the outcome or whatever. One thing you could do is write, the Jets will win the Super Bowl in 2024 on a piece of paper, put it in an envelope, seal the envelope, and ask me to keep it until the 2024 Super Bowl, after which you'll tell me either to open the envelope or burn it. But this requires you and everyone else to trust me. Another trustless thing you could do is type, the Jets will win the Super Bowl in 2024 into a cryptographic hash generator, and it will spit out 64B... Eight four seven, and then you can tweet. Here is a SHA two fifty six hash of a prediction I am making. Six four B dot 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 eight four seven. Everyone will say, "Well, aren't you annoying?" But they won't be able to decode your prediction. And then, in a while, when the Jets win the Super Bowl, you can say, "See, I called it." You retweet the hashed tweet and the plain text of your prediction. If anyone is so inclined, they can go to a hash calculator and check that the hash really matches your prediction. Then all the glory will accrue to you. Aside from hashing, another important one-way function is public key encryption. I have two numbers, called a public key and a private key. These numbers are long and random-looking, but they're related to each other. Using a publicly available algorithm, one number can be used to lock a message, and the other can unlock it. The two-key system solves a classic problem with codes. If the key I use to encrypt a message is the same one you'll need to decode it, at some point I'll have to have sent you that key. Anyone who steals the key in transit can read our messages. With public key encryption, no one needs to share the secret key. The public key is public. I can send it to everyone, post it on my Twitter feed, whatever. The private key is private, and I don't give it to anyone. You want to send me a secret message. You write the message and run it through the encryption algorithm, which uses one, the message, and two, my public key, which you have, to generate an encrypted message that you send to me. Then I run the message through a decryption program that uses one, the encrypted message, and two, my private key, which only I have, to generate the original message, which I can read. You can encrypt the message using my public key, but nobody can decrypt it using the public key. Only I can decrypt it using my private key. The function is one way as far as you're concerned, but I can reverse it with my private key. A related idea is a digital signature. Again, I have a public key and a private key. My public key is posted in my Twitter bio. I want to send you a message, and I want you to know that I wrote it. I run the message through an encryption program that uses 1, the message, and 2, my private key. Then I send you 1, the original message, and 2, the encrypted message. You use a decryption program that uses 1, the encrypted message, and 2, my public key, to decrypt the message. The decrypted message matches the original message. This proves to you that I encrypted the message. So you know that I wrote it. I could have just sent you a Twitter DM instead, but this is more cryptographic. Imagine a simple banking system in which bank accounts are public. There's a public list of accounts, and each one has a public balance and a public key. I say to you, I control account number 00123456789, which has $250 in it, and I'm going to send you $50. I send you a digitally signed message saying, here's $50, and you decode that message using the public key for the account, and then you know that I do in fact control that account, and everything checks out. That's the basic idea at the heart of Bitcoin. 
though there are also more complicated ideas. Section 4. Now, back to Bitcoin. How does it work? The simple form of Bitcoin goes like this. There's a big public list of addresses, each with a unique label that looks like random numbers and letters and some balance of Bitcoin in it. An address might have the label 1A1ZP1EP5QGEFI2DMPTFTL5SLMV7DIVFNA and a balance of 68.6 Bitcoin. By the way, that address, 1A1.FNA, is famous in crypto lore. It's the address that received the first Bitcoin. Presumably, it belongs to Satoshi Nakamoto. The address acts as a public key. Actually, it's a hash of the public key. But it is, in fact, perfectly legitimate cryptographic terminology to refer to the pubkey hash as a public key itself wrote Vitalik Buterin, creator of Ethereum, another major blockchain, in his 2014 white paper explaining that project. Good enough for Vitalik, good enough for me. If I own those Bitcoin, what that means is I possess the private key corresponding to that address, effectively the password accessing the account. Because I have the private key, I can send you a Bitcoin by signing a message to you with my private key. You can check that signature against my public key and against the public list of addresses and Bitcoin balances. That information is enough for you to confirm that I control the Bitcoin that I'm sending you, but not enough for you to figure out my private key and steal the rest of my Bitcoin. That kind of means I can send you a Bitcoin without you trusting me, or me trusting you, or either of us trusting a bank to verify that I have the money. We define an electronic coin as a chain of digital signatures, Satoshi wrote. The combination of public address and private key is enough to define a coin. Cryptocurrency is called cryptocurrency because it's a currency derived from cryptography. You'll notice that all we've done here is exchange a message and somehow called the result of that a currency. The traditional financial system isn't so different. Banks don't move around sacks of gold or even very many paper bills. They're keepers of databases. What happens roughly when I make a $100 payment to you is my bank sends a message to your bank telling it to update its ledger. Similarly, in Bitcoin, the messages change a public ledger of who holds what. But who maintains that? The rough answer is that the Bitcoin network Thousands of people who use Bitcoin and run its software on their computers keeps the ledger, collaboratively and redundantly. There are thousands of copies of the ledger. Every node on the network has its own list of how many Bitcoin are in each address. Then, when we do a transaction, when I send you a Bitcoin, we don't just do it privately. We broadcast it to the entire network so everyone can update their lists. If I send you a Bitcoin from my address and my signature on the transaction is valid, everyone will update their ledgers to add one Bitcoin to your address and subtract one from mine. The ledger is not really just a list of addresses and their balances. It's actually a record of every single transaction. Actually, it's only that, not a list of addresses and their balances at all. I describe it that way in the text for convenience, and you can reconstruct the list of addresses and balances from the record of all transactions, and people do, but that's not technically what a Bitcoin's ledger is. The ledger is maintained by everyone on the network keeping track of every transaction for themselves. 
There's a section in the Bitcoin white paper titled Reclaiming Disk Space about how the network can, in effect, compress some of the data it keeps about old transactions using Merkle trees, all of which is beyond the scope of this piece. But people in crypto say Merkle trees a lot. So there you go. All of that's nice, but now, instead of trusting a bank to keep the ledger of your money, you're trusting thousands of anonymous strangers. What have we accomplished? Well, it's not quite as bad as that. Each transaction is provably correct. If I send a Bitcoin from my address to yours and sign it with my private key, the network will include the transaction. If I try to send a Bitcoin from someone else's address to yours and don't have the private key, everyone on the network can see that it's fake and won't include the transaction. Everyone runs open source software to update the ledger for transactions that are verifiable. Everyone keeps the ledger, but you can prove that every transaction in the ledger is valid, so you don't have to trust them too much. Incidentally, I am saying that everyone keeps the ledger, and that was probably roughly true in early Bitcoin's life, but no longer. There are thousands of people running full nodes, which download and maintain and verify the entire Bitcoin ledger themselves, using open-source official Bitcoin software. But there are millions more not doing that, just having some Bitcoin and trusting that everybody else will maintain the system correctly. Their basis for this trust, though, is slightly different from the basis for your trust in your bank. They could, in principle, verify that everyone verifying the transactions is verifying them correctly. Philosophically, they're part of a trustless system, so they can feel a bit better about trusting it. Notice, too, that there's a financial incentive for everyone to be honest. If everyone is honest, then this is a working payment system that might be valuable. If lots of people are dishonest and put fake transactions in their ledgers, then no one will trust Bitcoin and it will be worthless. What's the point of stealing Bitcoin if the value of Bitcoin is zero? This is a standard approach in crypto. Crypto systems try to use economic incentives to make people act honestly, rather than trusting them to act honestly. That's most of the story, but it leaves some small problems. Where did all the Bitcoin come from? It's fine to say that everyone on the network keeps a ledger of every Bitcoin transaction that ever happened, and your Bitcoin can be traced back through a series of previous transactions. But traced back to what? How do you start the ledger? Another problem is that the order of transactions matters. If I have one Bitcoin in my account and I send it to you, and then I send it to someone else, who actually has the Bitcoin? This seems almost trivial, but it's tricky. Bitcoin is a decentralized network that works by broadcasting transactions to thousands of nodes, and there's no guarantee they'll all arrive in the same order everywhere. And if everyone doesn't agree on the order, bad things, double spending or people sending the same Bitcoin to two different places, can happen. Transactions must be publicly announced, wrote Satoshi, and we need a system for participants to agree on a single history of the order in which they were received. That system, I'm sorry to say, is the blockchain. Section 5. Oh, the blockchain. Every Bitcoin transaction is broadcast to the network. Some computers on the network, they're called miners, compile the transactions as they arrive into a group called a block. At some point, a version of a block becomes, as it were, official. The list of transactions in that block, in the order in which they're listed, becomes canonical, part of the official Bitcoin record. 
we say that the block has been mined. Actually, a block becomes really canonical when it has five confirmations. When it has been mined, and then another block has been mined that refers back to it, and then another block has been mined referring to that block, etc., five times, so that the chain has continued five blocks after the block in question. In Bitcoin, a new block is mined roughly every 10 minutes. You can see a finished block online on any Block Explorer site. For example, block 755965, mined on September 27th, is basically a list of 2,466 transactions between different addresses. An address starting BC1QNS sent 0.0052 Bitcoin to an address starting 16QZC7. 39VGGL split 0.012 Bitcoin between 114NRDK and 3701E3, and so on. The miners then start compiling a new block, which will also eventually be mined and become official. Here's where hashing becomes important. That new block will refer to the block before it by containing a hash of that block. This confirms that the block before it, one, is correct and accepted by the network, and two, came before it in time. Each block will refer to the previous block in a chain. Oh yes, a blockchain. The blockchain creates an official record of what transactions the network has agreed on and in what order. The hashes are timestamps. They create an agreed order of transactions. You could imagine a simple system for doing this. Every 10 minutes, a miner proposes a list of transactions, and all the computers on the Bitcoin network vote on it. If it gets a majority, it becomes official and is entered into the blockchain. Unfortunately, this is a bit too simple. There are no rules about who can join the Bitcoin network. Anyone who hooks up a computer and runs the open-source Bitcoin software can do it. You don't have to prove you're a good person or even a person. You can hook up a thousand computers if you want. This creates a risk of what's sometimes called a Sybil attack, named not after the ancient Greek prophetesses, but rather after the 1973 book about a woman who claimed to have multiple personalities. The idea of a Sybil attack is that in a system where the ledger is collectively maintained by the group and anyone can join the group without permission, you can spin up a bunch of computer nodes so that you look like thousands of people. Then you verify bad transactions to yourself and everyone is like, ah, well, look at all of these people verifying the transactions. And they accept your transactions as the majority consensus and either you manage to steal some money or you at least throw the whole system into chaos. The solution to this is to make it expensive to verify transactions. To mine a block, Bitcoin miners do an absurd and costly thing. Again, it involves hashing. Each miner takes a summary of the list of transactions in the block, along with a hash of the previous block. Then the miner sticks another arbitrary number, called a nonce, on the end of the list. The miner runs the whole thing, list plus nonce, through a SHA-256 hashing algorithm. This generates a 64-digit hexadecimal number. If that number is small enough, then the miner has mined the block. If not, the miner tries again with a different nonce. What small enough means is set by the Bitcoin software and can be adjusted to make it easier or harder to mine a block. The goal is an average of one block every 10 minutes. The more miners there are and the faster their computers are, the harder it gets. Right now, small enough means that the hash has to start with 19 zeros. A recent successful one looked like this. 19 zeros followed by 6C9 yada yada 8FF203. 
It's like a game of 20 questions where you're constantly guessing a number that will work. Except you get no clues, and it's many, many, many times more than 20 guesses. It is vanishingly, vanishingly unlikely that any particular input, any list of transactions plus a nonce, will hash to a number that starts with 19 zeros. The odds are roughly 75 sextillion to 1 against. So the miners run the hash algorithm over and over again, trillions of times, guessing a different nonce each time, until they get a hash with the right number of zeros. Vitalik again. Because SHA-256 is designed to be a completely unpredictable pseudo-random function, the only way to create a valid block is simply trial and error, repeatedly incrementing the nonce and seeing if the new hash matches. The total hash rate of the Bitcoin network is something north of 200 million terahashes per second. That is, 200 quintillion hash calculations per second, which is one, a lot, but two, a lot fewer than 75 sextillion. It takes many seconds, 600 on average, at 200 quintillion hashes per second to guess the right nonce and mine a block. This is a race. Only one miner gets to mine a block, and that miner gets rewarded with Bitcoin. To mine a block is also to mine new coins, to pry them out of the system after much computational work, like finding a seam of gold after picking through rock. Hence the metaphor. When miners find the right number of zeros, they publish the block and its hash to the Bitcoin network. Everyone else reviews the block and decides if it's valid. Valid means all the transactions on the list are valid, the hash is correct, it has the right number of zeros, etc. If they do, then they start work on the next block. They take the hash of the previous block, plus the transactions that have come in since then, plus a new nonce, and try to find a new hash. Each block builds on the one before. Section 6. Mining. All of this is incredibly costly. Miners need special hardware to do all of these hashing calculations over and over again, and these days run huge farms of always-on computers. Mining Bitcoin uses as much electricity as various medium-sized countries. This is not great for the environment. The most famous description of Bitcoin, attributed to a Twitter poster, might be, Imagine if keeping your car idling 24-7 produced solved Sudokus you could trade for heroin. And it is in some sense purely wasteful. People sometimes say Bitcoin miners are, like, solving difficult math problems to do their mining. But they aren't really. They're brute force guessing quintillions of numbers per second to try to get the right hash. No math problems are being solved, and nothing is added to the world's knowledge by those quintillions of guesses. But the miners are solving an important problem for Bitcoin, which is the problem of keeping its network and its ledger of transactions secure. It's demonstrably costly to confirm Bitcoin transactions, so it's hard to fake, hard to run a Sybil attack. That's why Satoshi and everyone else calls this method of confirming transactions proof of work. If you produce the right hash for a block, it proves you did a lot of costly computer work. You wouldn't do that lightly. Proof-of-work mining is a mechanism for creating consensus among people with an economic stake in a system without knowing anything else about them. You'd never mine Bitcoin if you didn't want Bitcoin to be valuable. If you're a Bitcoin miner, you're invested in Bitcoin in some way. You've bought computers and paid for electricity and made an expensive, exhausting bet on Bitcoin. You have proven that you care, 
so you get a say in verifying the Bitcoin ledger. And you get paid. You get paid Bitcoin, which gives you even more of a stake in the system. These Bitcoin come out of nowhere. They're generated by this mining, by the core Bitcoin software. In fact, all Bitcoin are generated by mining. There was never an initial allocation of Bitcoin to Satoshi Nakamoto or to early investors or anyone else. This is the answer to the question of where Bitcoin come from. They were all mined. Originally, the mining reward, which is set by the software, was 50 Bitcoin per block. Currently, it's 6.25 Bitcoin. One important point about these mining rewards is that they cost Bitcoin users money. Every block, roughly every 10 minutes, 6.25 new Bitcoin are produced out of nowhere and paid to miners for providing security to the network. That works out to more than $6 billion per year. That is 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes, or 37.5 per hour, or 900 per day, multiplied by 365 days a year, multiplied by the price of Bitcoin. This cost is indirect. It is a form of inflation, and as the supply of Bitcoin grows, each coin, in theory, becomes worth a little less, all else being equal. Famously, though, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. It's written into the code. So what happens when that limit is reached? What incentive could miners have to keep the Bitcoin network running? Transaction fees. The Bitcoin code also lets miners collect a slice of each transaction, and this will become the only method for rewarding them once the last coin is mined. Current estimates are that this won't happen until 2140. Right now, the Bitcoin network is paying around 1.5% of its value per year to miners. That's lower than the inflation rate of the U.S. dollar. Still, it's worth noting. Every year, the miners who keep the Bitcoin system secure capture a small but meaningful chunk of the total value of Bitcoin. Bitcoin users get something for that $6 billion. Security and decentralization. If you can make a lot of money mining Bitcoin, a lot of people will want to mine Bitcoin. This will make it harder for one person to accumulate most of the mining power in Bitcoin. If one person or group got a majority of the mining power, they could do bad things. They could mine a bad block, double spending coins, reversing recent transactions, etc. This is called a 51% attack. When there are billions of dollars up for grabs for miners, people will invest a lot of money in mining, and it will be expensive to compete with them. And if you invested billions of dollars to accumulate a majority of the mining power in Bitcoin, you would probably care a lot about maintaining the value of Bitcoin, and so you'd be unlikely to use your powers for evil.